So this month, we've been concentrating on what uh, gives us our framework as a local church. We, those are, are known as our vision and our values. Um, and so today, we're, we're, we're looking at the second of our three values that helps us live out our vision of, of making the supremacy of God known. But I just want to say, it's, it's a value that cannot exist in a healthy way apart from the value we highlighted last week, which is the Word of God. So this is one of my, this is one of my favorite quotes by one of my favorite theologians uh, named Francis Schaeffer. I've, I've said this quote before, but it just reiterates the point, and I can't say it any better than, than Francis Schaeffer can say it. But he says this. He says, The call of God is to simultaneously practice the orthodoxy of doctrine and the orthodoxy of community in the visible church. So this is the visible church right here. The latter of these we have too often but forgotten, but one cannot explain the explosiveness of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. This orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often only been preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but the exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. End quote. So we could say it this way. So we learned last week what it means to keep the word, which would be an orthodoxy of doctrine. So doctrine is what we believe and what we teach. So we, so we keep the word. And this week we'll learn what it means to keep community, which is obviously the orthodoxy of community. So what I want us to see from the text today is that, is that keeping the gospel is what not only creates this community, but also keeps this community, which will be our two points in your outline that's in your worship guide. So this type of community doesn't exist before the gospel comes, and it doesn't exist apart from the gospel. So in a letter written to the famous uh, preacher John Wesley, the, the writer said to him, he says, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. So it's the reality that we see that exists throughout the Scriptures. The church doesn't start in Acts chapter 2, by the way, in the verses we're about to read. The church starts at the very beginning of the Bible, when God begins to create a people for Himself. So I want us to delve in to see what this is all about. So look with me at Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 37 and work our way through verse 47. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
To those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak to us now from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point here in in this outline is keeping the gospel. So in verses 37 through 41, um, helps us to understand that 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 is the gospel first keeps us. The gospel first keeps up. We didn't didn't seek it out. God brought it to us. Or should I say, God brought you to the gospel. So as the hymn goes, if you had not loved me first, if God had not loved you first, you would refuse him still. So this isn't us trying to make this happen. It's not us trying to make a certain community happen happen. If you are one who has repented and believed the gospel, the the author of Acts, Luke, is telling us via the Holy Spirit, this is happening right now in our midst. So let me just give you a little bit of context to these verses because we kind of jumped into it right here at the end. But Jesus has ascended, so he's, re- he's been resurrected, he's met with his disciples, he's shown himself to many people, and then we have Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven, the Spirit then comes upon the church, the Holy Spirit, and then in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter preaches his very first sermon, he's preaching to a, a crowd of Jews, and what he does is he simply just uses the prophets and the Psalms to, to tell the story of God to his audience. And then in verse 36, he ends his sermon by bringing the hammer down. So remember, this is in Acts chapter 2, they are not far removed from Jesus' death. It is, it is still very much fresh upon the minds of his hearers. And still Peter ends with verse 36. So look, look at verse 36. Peter preaches the gospel and then he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom you killed. So I tend to uh, end my sermons hopeful, at least, at least that's what I'm seeking to do, or maybe with a challenge, maybe something that's a, a bit challenging. Not Peter, at least not in this instance does he do this. He lays it all before them. He holds nothing back. And now you have to recognize, because in our context, I, can, I could probably get away with saying most things up here, and you might be a little bit of, offended 
and you would walk away kind of like, okay, that was, that was it. Or you, or you have these particular uh, bless your heart kind of southerners who would just kind of smile and nod, even if they're convicted of sin, but they would just talk about you behind your back when you left. Not these people that Peter is talking to. These people, Peter says, they have just murdered a man in cold blood, an innocent man. So with these words that Peter ends on, it's a death sentence for Peter. And you see it later on in the book of Acts here in uh, Acts chapter 7 when, the, the, when Deacon Stephen uh, comes and preaches the gospel to Jews, just like Peter's doing, and at the end of it all, it says pretty much the same thing Peter does, they stone him to death. So what Peter is doing here is uh, could, could, could bring death upon him. Yet his audience gives the very opposite reaction here. I, I would even, this is probably the, the preacher's dream reaction right here. I'm just being honest. This is the tr- preacher's dream reaction. Luke, the author, tells us that they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart, which simply means that their conscience was stricken with what Peter has just said that they have done. They They were convicted of their sin. Their guilt was overwhelming them. And all they can do is ask the question, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? So they're either thinking, we're used to doing something to earn God's favor, So give us something to do so that we can be at peace with God. Or they're thinking, everything that we have been doing up to this moment doesn't have an answer to this question. We don't know what to do. So either way, uh, these are two dilemmas that everyone comes up against when they are presented with the truth and reality of the gospel. So you may, have, you may have heard the gospel here, and you too are seeing the dilemma that we are put in. You recognize it's not about what you've done or ever will do that will earn you favor with God. It will never happen. Nor do the things that you're currently involved in help either whether that's other communities that you're involved in or other people that are around you, your family members, whoever, nothing is going to be able to ask, answer the question, what shall I do like the gospel does? So hear Peter's clear answer in verse 38. When they ask the question, what shall we do? Peter says to them, and very clearly, repent, and be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So these two actions, this repentance and baptism are held together. You could also say, you could also replace uh, baptism with repent and believe because you hear that over and over uh, as, as well in the New Testament. Repent and be baptized or repent and believe. But they're held together because repentance signifies a turning away from something. When I am repenting of something, I am turning away from it. And in this case, it's a sinful life. It's, it's a life that is lived solely for myself. A life that is running away from God instead of towards God. 
So you could say repentance signifies your old life fading away. And it's something that you'll always be doing. Martin Luther says that, that all of life is repentance. It's not just a one and done thing. All of life is repentance. So it's as if to say all of life is your old life fading as you grow in your awareness and understanding of the gospel. Because as you grow in your understanding and awareness of the gospel, you're, you're going to see your sin even more clearly. And what you're going to want to do is to say, what shall I do? And you're going to say, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Over and over and over again. And then you have baptism, which signifies a new life coming to fruition. So it signifies that you are now washed in the blood of Christ. Baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are now a child of the King, forgiven. So in verses 37 through 41, you have ruined sinners. Ruined sinners. Men, women, and children who've rejected Jesus. They had a hand in his murder, even. And they received from Jesus, this same Jesus that they crucified, they received from him the gift of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's like, it's as if Jesus is saying to them through the scriptures being preached by Peter, I forgive you. I forgive you. And not only that, I'm going to give you my spirit to help you live as my disciples and to live in this grace that has just been shown to you. And the fruit of all of this is 3,000 souls. People, real people, were added to the church that day. So it wasn't until, if you just kind of follow along in those verses, it wasn't until Peter preached the word of God, the people hear the word of God, they believe the word of God, and they respond to the word of God, do they receive forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until all of that happens that we get verses 42 through 47. So understand that we cannot move to verses 42 through 47 unless God moves in us. Because we don't create this community. God does. We don't have community apart from the movement of the Spirit in our midst. We don't have it. It's it's impossible. So if we don't understand our own brokenness and need, nothing else in all the world will be able to answer the question that we're asking, what shall we do? How do we do this? Because when you begin to experience the effects of the fall in your life, and you will experience the effects of the fall, whether it's loneliness or anxiety, maybe it's frustration over your your kid's behavior or your marriage or job pressures or school stress, you'll find yourself hopelessly asking yourself this question again and again. What shall I do? What shall I do? 
And instead of answering it with repentance and belief, we often try to answer it by running to our families or running to our, our job where, where we are uh, affirmed every day or running to, to our children or, 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 or running to food or even alcohol or binge-watching Netflix so that we can kind of be comforted by these things and, and help the pain and the reality of brokenness to go away. Or you run to alternative communities, which may in and of themselves not be all that bad, like, a, like within the school, your, your, your children's school or your job or at the gym or a club or a hobby group. People who may or may not uh, know Jesus, but who most definitely are not covenanted to you in any way, shape, or form. So if this is where you land, you may not be ready for verses 42 through 47. Because what will end up happening, if you just kind of jump into verses 42 through 47, uh, uh, divorced from the gospel, divorced from an understanding of your need of Jesus... What will end up happening is that you'll always find fault with those God has called you into community with, and this is what what you'll do. You'll leave. You'll abandon ship. As soon as someone uh, gets to know you a little bit and they they, they might see sin in your life or whatever and they rebuke you or confront you in your sin, you'll get, instead of saying, thank you, brother or sister, you'll get angry and you'll leave. Or instead of bearing with your brothers and sister in love, because uh, there's people here that annoy us, let's just be honest. Instead of bearing with them, and uh, you, get, you get frustrated with them and you leave. Or you're trying to live in your own strength. You're trying to kind of gird yourself up and you're trying to hype yourself up to have this emotional experience with people and you're expecting all of these things out of people and you're trying to do all of this in your own strength. Uh, And what will end up happening again is you'll leave. Trust me, I have seen it happen over and over and over again. And the common denominator is a misunderstanding of the gospel and therefore a misunderstanding of the body of Christ. So there's a good book I recommend. It's not back on the book table, but I need to get a couple of copies. But it's called When Church Was a Family. When Church Was a Family. And in the very first paragraph of chapter 1, the author writes this. Quote, he says, Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. Meaning, long-term interpersonal relationships within the context of a local church, not these scattered communities that you may be involved in, within the context of a local church, people that you see week in and week out. So within the crucible of genuine, uh, is genuine progress in the Christian life, people who stay grow in the gospel. People who leave do not grow. They don't. So let's grow together as a church. Let's, let's repent of our sins together. We've already done it once already this morning. Let's believe the gospel together. Because keeping the gospel is what keeps this community, which is our second point. 
So what does this community kept by the gospel look like? And I can tell you, uh, it doesn't look like other communities that we're involved in, okay? Uh, me and three of my kids have started doing uh, jujitsu, and we love it. It's fun, and we have a good time. We're making good friends there and getting to know people on, uh, on, on somewhat of a, not a deep level, but we're getting to know them. We go a few hours a week, so we spend a, a chunk of time with these other people, uh, we're invested financially and, and physically in this community, but really that's where it ends. I can guarantee you if I stopped paying for us to, to take lessons there, we would stop being allowed into this community. We've made no covenants with these people. We are not bound to them in any way, shape, or form. So we could stop going, and nothing truly significant would happen. Except that we would get weaker, I guess. And this is true of most communities that we're involved in outside of the church. But a lot of times, we prioritize these other communities, and these include your family communities as well. Your, 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 your spouse and your children. We prioritize these other communities over and above the community of the body and blood of Christ, the church. People who we are called into communion with. And so what ends up happening when you do this, whether you know it or not, is you end up damaging your church community when you do this. But, but not only that, you also end up damaging the other communities that God has called you into. Because these other communities benefit from your covenanting with a local church. They benefit from the accountability that you receive from your brothers and sisters in Christ. They benefit from your, um, your access to the word of God. They benefit from you gathering with the saints on a weekly basis to sit under the preaching of God's word. These other communities are blessed by that. But if you neglect it, they're not. So what does this type of community kept by the gospel look like? Let me reread for us verses 42 through 47. And listen closely. This is after the 3,000 souls come to faith in Christ, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this, this is the go-to text for talking about community, as it should be. But it also uh, can become the cliche text as, as well. I, 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 like, did, I almost didn't want to preach on this particular text again, because it's probably the third or fourth time I've preached on this text, because it is, has become such a cliche to point to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, sadly enough. But 
It's the one that truly points to what it looks like for the gospel to be working in and through a a local body of believers. And it's something that we should put into practice. So I want to describe to us this community. So there's not going to be much application in these next few moments. I just want to describe to, to you this community that we see here in Acts 2, 42 through 47. So some characteristics that we see in the text. And let me just confess that I'm borrowing these from the late Reverend John Stott from his commentary. He gives these four headings of what this community actually looks like. So first is it's a learning community. It's a learning community. And you see this immediately in verse 42. Luke says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to it. They were singular in their devotion to the Word of God. So they have come to faith in Christ. We can just assume that they had other teachings and other teachers that they were listening to, and they leave those behind, and they devote themselves to the teaching that is happening within the church, the apostles' teaching. So even at this young stage in their faith, these are, these are kindergarten Christians, we could say, these 3,000 souls that have come to faith in Christ, they're already keeping the word. They already know that this is what they are supposed to be doing. I was so encouraged yesterday, coming, I came home yesterday morning and rolled up to see uh, to my house to see a dozen extra cars uh, sitting out, in, cars and minivans, sitting out in front of my house for the women's Bible study. And then I walk in and see sisters gathered around the Word together and speaking about the Word together. And that was just an encouraging moment. And I'm, I know some of you were encouraged by that as well. I love hearing about how you guys are discussing the Word in your missional communities. I love that. I love hearing about how you're, you're, you're opening the word together in your DNA groups and how, how that, is, that is provoking um, uh, you in, in, in confessing sin and, and uh, encouraging you to be in the scriptures even more. I, I really sense an eagerness amongst us to do this. I do. I, I sense that, an eagerness, a devotedness to the very word of God. And that's the Spirit's work at Christ the King Church. That's nothing that I have done or any, any of our elders or other leaders have done. That is the Spirit at work. We can't orchestrate that on our own. And this is what drives the church forward. So the second, so the first characteristic is a, it's a learning community. The second is that it's a loving community. So verse 42 again says, They were not only devoted to the teaching of the apostles, But they're also devoted to the fellowship. Now, I'm sure if you've hung around churches for any amount of time, you've heard that word fellowship. And I often think that word is is watered down in our church culture. We, We name designated areas in church buildings. We have the fellowship hall or the fellowship building as if that's the only place that fellowship can take place uh, within, within the church. But when you boil this word down to the bare minimum of its meaning, it means common. Common. So you could say their fellowship bore witness to what they held in common. So this is both 
what they share in what they share in together. So they share in the fellowship uh, that they have of being a baptized people, baptized into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you see that here in the text that they have been saved by Jesus. They have been forgiven of their sins and they're walking in repentance. But also they share in or what they have in common with we share what they have out together. So we share with what we have in together, but we also share with what we have out together. So this is the idea of what we give as well as what we receive. So if you look at the text there, there is a loving, sacrificial generosity amongst this community. It's almost unreal, unheard of when you read it. Verse 45 says that they are voluntarily selling their possessions and belongings. So most likely during this particular time, they are selling real estate. They're selling their land. They're selling their, uh, what, they're, what they've inherited from their families. Things that, are, that belong to them right, uh, lawfully. And they receive what they get from the sale and then they give it away to any who have need amongst them. And they were generous because they recognized God had been generous to them. Now, I'm not going to give you any specific applications on that. You, you work that out in your own heart. But, 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 but remember 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Where Paul writes later, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That was the motivator for the early church, to give as they gave. Well, the third characteristic of this community is it was a worshiping community. Now, that seems to go without saying, but I think it has to be said because it tends to be taken for granted that the church in Jerusalem is not only devoted to the teaching of the apostles and they're devoted to the fellowship of, of the saints, of the believers, but they're also devoted to corporate worship, which includes the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship of the saints, but it also includes the Lord's Supper. And it also includes prayer, that what we see here in the text. So this is why later the the author of Hebrews can write in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, who says, don't neglect to meet together. Or if you have the King James Version, don't forsake the assembly of the saints. And what we're doing right here, right now, is exactly that. He says, don't forsake this. So this includes... This happening now, corporate worship, corporate gatherings, but it also includes those gatherings that you have in your home as well. We kind of demonstrate those in our life uh, uh, through missional communities. But verse 46 said, they worshiped in the temple courts, so they worshiped formally, they gathered all together under one, in one place, and in homes. They also gathered to worship informally as well. And the worship of God defined their life together. It defined them. This is who they were. 
because it was a constant reminder to them of who they were in Christ, that they were a baptized people called to to life together. So they were keeping the gospel. They were keeping the orthodoxy of doctrine here by following the apostles' teaching, but they were also keeping community. They were following the orthodoxy of community as well in a healthy way. They kept both of these together. And this is what I believe is what gives them this next characteristic, this final characteristic, which is it's an evangelistic community. And we'll talk about this in way more detail next week as we look at our final uh, value, which is mission. But we see this in verse 41. After Peter's sermon, the response is 3,000 souls believe and are baptized. So Peter is preaching the gospel to thousands of people here in Jerusalem. So the church grew at this particular moment. At this particular moment, the church grew from 120 people to 3,000 people. That's what happens when Peter preaches the gospel. It multiplied 26 times in this one instance. And it almost seems automatically that they begin to practice these new rhythms together, but they don't forget about evangelism. Whether they call it evangelism or not, this is, this is how we know that, that they don't forget about it, okay? Through their practice of biblical community, which another theologian says is the only hermeneutic of the gospel which means that a living community of believers living out these rhythms of the gospel that we see in these verses is a tangible witness of the gospel to a watching world. It's something that you can experience. It's something that you can be a part of. We sang it earlier. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Will they? Will a watching world know we are Christians at Christ the King Church by our love for one another? Are we demonstrating the gospel in a real and tangible way? Those who were in Jerusalem at this time not only saw this tangible love, but they heard it as well. And what happens as a result of this? Luke tells us in verse 47, He says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as people were experiencing the gospel through the community of the church, God was saving them. They were coming to an understanding of their need for Christ, and they were asking the question, what shall we do? And these 3,000 are responding, repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. That's what you do. Trust in Jesus alone. So what does this look like lived out here at Christ the King? And I just want to give three ways that we try to live this out, try to live our vision of community out, um, just so you know. One is through corporate worship, what we do here which is the saints, that the saints would gather on the Sabbath day, which we believe is Sunday, that the saints would gather on the Sabbath day weekly, regularly, and consistently to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. 
And if you are a believer in Christ, that is something that you should be doing. Second, we have missional communities, small groups, community groups, whatever you want to call it. We have reasons why we call it missional communities, but we believe our missional communities to be a vital part of our shared life and growth in Christ. It's, it's where we build community around the word. It's where we deepen relationships with one another. It's where we confess sin together. It's where we comfort one another in the gospel. It's where we serve one another. It's where we discover and live the Christian life together and encourage one another to live on the mission that God has placed us all in together as a body. And then third, may seem kind of technical, but third is church membership. We take church membership seriously at CTK. That's why we don't ask you to just walk down the aisle and then all of a sudden you sign a piece of paper and you're a church member. We don't do it that way. We take it seriously because we, we believe that this is what the Bible calls believers to, is to join a local body. Covenanting together as the body of Christ is one of the most important spiritual disciplines that you can do as a believer in Christ. And I'm just going to tell you right now, if for some reason someone, this is just honestly how I think about it pastorally, if for some reason someone is not connecting to a local body and they're just kind of floating out there and, not, and refusing to join a church, the only thing that I can assume by that is you're not a Christian. Because you're refusing to be a part of the body of Christ. So think about it. When you, join a, when you join a local expression of the body of Christ, you are now a, a visible witness to a watching world of what it means to be a community of believers. And, and that's not me saying that. That's what the Bible says very clearly. It's a visible witness to the watching world. And, and, in, and on top of that, you have other brothers and sisters around you who are encouraging you and loving you, loving you in the oneness of the gospel. I mean, who wouldn't want that as a believer? So we, as, as the elders, as your pastors, as your shepherds, would like to see us ordering our life rhythms around these things, because we believe it to be a powerful expression of the gospel in a world that is asking, what shall we do? And I believe the only answer, or I believe the answer is only found within the community of the body and blood of Jesus, his church. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we, uh, sometimes these words are hard. The, the, the Bible is hard to hear sometimes for us as believers, and it convicts us, and it, it strickens our conscience like we, like we see that, that has happened uh, to, to, um, to these Jews in, in, in the early church as well. But I pray that we would not leave here without responding through repentance and faith maybe for the first time or for the 100th time. 
that we would respond to the gospel that we heard today through repentance and faith again, repentance and belief again. So God, would you make us into a community that lives in the reality of the gospel day in and day out? We know we're going to do it imperfectly. In fact, I hope we do it imperfectly so that we're not dependent upon ourselves or our own giftings, but that we're constantly dependent upon uh, what Christ has done for us through the cross and in his resurrection. So God, would you make us into a people like that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.